Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Amazing week. Lots to talk about. 530 points down in the Dow Jones. You don't think it's impacting you? Well, that probably just shows you don't quite understand the impact on pensions across the country. Unfunded liabilities of public sector pensions, which every taxpayer is on the hook for. Don't understand that that's a component part, significant component part of the Canada pension plan, let alone your own stocks. But the reverberations are massive throughout the economy in the world. So much to talk about, as I said today. You know, two weeks ago, I said that China had the potential to be the biggest financial story of the year. What should be of extreme importance, by the way, to note is that despite spending over $500 billion to prop up their market, a raft of other policies to stem the tide of the stock decline, China's been unsuccessful in doing that. Unsuccessful in reducing the decline in the overall economy. And I'm going to come back to that later because it sheds the light, or should shed the light, on the biggest piece of dangerous nonsense that I hear relentlessly during this federal election. But it won't. But to start today, I'm going to look at the profound sea change in the Canadian economy. One that's slapping us in the face, but you don't see it mentioned, and no sign that it's understood. I'm going to start talking about this incredible decline in commodities. Now, oil gets the headlines as I've been saying for a year, but that misses the big story. We've got natural gas down 30%, iron ore down 46%, nickel off 40% in the last year alone. Copper's at six and a half year lows. It is not the oil industry in decline, it's the resource industry in decline. So here's a fact for you. The resource industry makes up about a third of Canada's private sector economy. That's a third of the private sector economy. Yet we have millions of people, usually in urban centers, led by big environment, mayors like Vancouver, Gregor Robertson, public sector unions led by teachers and nurses unions. They're stalking horses in the Green Party, NDP, all fighting resource development. Now let me be clear, that's their right and I actually I support that right. This is what I have a problem with, is that so many of the anti-resource crowd don't know the facts. And there's a dangerous disingenuousness of continually ignoring the consequences. So go ahead, shut down resources. But don't pretend there are no consequences to it. I'm going to give you a quick example. Can you imagine the impact on railway and port and other marine workers if you shut down the resource industry, given resource products account for more than two-thirds of rail and marine shipments in Canada? And here's a fact you should know. The resource industry accounts for nearly half of all capital spending in this country. If you take out residential real estate, resources account for nearly half of all capital spending. So why could anyone be surprised that when we get a decline in resource prices like we're experiencing, the shelving of projects, that our economic growth is lagging? My God, it's a third of the private sector economy. But more than that, it's half of all capital spending. But here's the big fact that impacts all of us. And again, I don't mind what your point of view is. I mind you ignore the facts. Resources contribute on average. This is StatsCan's latest numbers. 2009, 2010, 11, 12, 13. The average was resource industry committing $26 billion to government. Government's revenue from resources, $26 billion. So I say fair enough if you're saying no to resources. 
But you can't say that without any thought to the impact on government revenue and employment. The impact on government services would be huge. I mean, it's more than ironic. It's idiotic for public sector unions, advocates of higher government spending on things like subsidized daycare or higher public sector wages and benefits. You want more spending on health care or education, including faculty members at the University of British Columbia and Simon Fraser, to oppose resource extraction, development, and infrastructure without even acknowledging the impact on government revenues. That's my complaint. Address all the facts, make your decision. But don't pretend it doesn't happen. The other main point of opposition I have is probably philosophical. I can't think of anything more devastating for an individual and their family is to lose their job. Well, resource opponents disagree with me. They don't show any sign of caring about the hardship on workers and their families that shutting down the industry would cause. That's already causing, I might add. That's why you can't find a single example of an environmental icon like David Suzuki, probably your hero, media darlings like Naomi Klein or politicos like Elizabeth May. They never talk about the job losses. They never talk about the impact on families. Boy, I want you to think about that. That's more than insensitive. Do you have any idea how many people I'm talking about here? Because I talked to a resource guy the other day. Uh, Not a resource, an opponent. I don't usually beat people over the head with this, but it was just too much for me to hear. He didn't have any idea how many people. 1.8 million Canadians' livelihood depends on the resource industry. And then there's many more in spinoffs, in the service industry, for example, who are impacted by the contraction by the change in consumer confidence that this has caused. We're in a major decline here. The decline of the commodity cycle is already resulting in layoffs, steep drops in government revenues in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Northwest Territories. It's just beginning, by the way. It's a big hit for Ontario and Quebec. But here's the thing. That's a big hit on services or a huge escalation of debt. Your choice. It always comes back to that H.L. Mencken line. I refer to it regularly. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it good and hard. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Top three stories that people are talking about. My goodness, there is ever a list on this week. Dow Jones down 530 points yesterday, 1,000 points for the week. China, 12% for the week. This is after all of their other declines, after all the government intervention. Oh, there's some messages here. The thing that worries me is this is unraveling precisely the way we've been describing on this show. I started the year by saying we are living the age of consequences that the fourth quarter in the year would reveal. I said at that time, the biggest problem I saw coming, and there may be many others as the, as the year unfolded, I said the biggest problem I saw coming were emerging markets who had borrowed in U.S.-denominated bonds. Why? Because their currency was falling, commodities were falling, and presto, the cost of their debt servicing was going way up because their currency was falling against U.S. dollars. That is the scenario we're living today. Come back. i got top three stories. I've also got what I considered the most unbelievable admission by an official when it comes to an economic policy that I, I, it really is top of mind I've ever seen, ever heard. I'll share that with you before we're done here in the next few minutes. Rob Levy joins me on the line. Top three stories next. 
As I said, coming up uh, just in a few minutes, I'm going to share what I think was the most unbelievable admission I have heard from an official regarding an economic policy. Wait till you hear this one. Right now, though, I'm joined by Rob Levy. Top three, st- top three stories now, if, as you know, you're listening to Money Talks. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. It deals in the in the tech industry, and it's no fees. And to get more information, just go to soleraclub.com. And, of course, as I said, Solera Club brings you Money Talks and the top three stories that we're talking about today, smart people. Rob Levy joins me. Rob, let's start with I mean, let's get to it. There's so much to talk about. Go to number three. Well, going to number three, Mike, it's a comment I heard uh, the week in reference to just the disastrous action we were seeing in the markets. And uh, one analyst a few years ago was the right time to raise interest rates. This is not the right backdrop for the U.S. Fed to hike interest rates. Yeah, interesting, eh? Because, of course, that's the big debate happening right, you know, been happening for quite a while. Will they raise interest rates? September seems still to be kind of 50-50, but boy, I agree with uh, Mr. Vittner of Wells Fargo. Uh, this doesn't seem look, look like the time to me, when especially you see the market action the last week. Absolutely correct. And this week, upcoming, we've got Stanley Fisher speaking at that key Jackson Hole Symposium, usually when they right. a little more detail into their policy. And the Fed has just been absent from the discussion and what's going on in China right now, the global economy and how it's going to affect U.S. interest rate policy. And just to go sideways to a quick comment on the market, it just has been absolutely so ugly. And the key question here is the action in the financial markets, the equity markets, going to influence their decision because there's a debate going on there as well, whether the Fed cares that the stock market is selling off right now. Well, it's interesting, though. In the past, they have made a link between consumer confidence and the stock market. Uh, you know, people's confidence goes up when they see the You know, they kind of get that feeling a little bit more confident. I can tell you right now, uh, looking at the action of the market, uh, despite the fact that I'd been anticipating it, it's still so violent, it grabs you, you know. And, it, and so I, I'm not so sure that won't be a really important factor. And as you just alluded to, Rob, especially, uh, you know, China's a big deal. We know it in this show. They should know it. It, absolutely, and the key one that hit me this week too was usually the blue chip names. And every yeah. market sell-off have still seen some buy on the dips opportunity. And you look at the big names in this market: the Apple just absolutely crushed a few hundred million in market value, wiped off. They've gone from one hundred and thirty dollars a share to one hundred and six. So you're not seeing the buy the dips and the big popular blue chip tech names in this sell-off either. Great point. What's number two? Uh, number two was Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs, and a very interesting comment regarding oil. You're not going to see an equilibrium in the price of oil. You're not going to see a market rate for the price of oil, where oil's going, until we start to see some stability in the general markets. You know what I find uh, challenging about the oil thing, and, and as you well know, we have absolutely been on top of that. Uh, Joseph Schachter, our uh, lead oil analyst, Victor Adair, uh, myself, have been talking about this decline, first from the 107 mark, I was about three months early, but happy I was there early than late. Uh, you know, down to the 42, rebounded. Again, every week on this show, we said, no, it's going to make a new low. It has done that now. But here's the thing, Rob. I find the tendency is once you get hard in that direction, you now start hearing all the reports of much worse. For example, you know, when oil was going up and it was going up from 100 into the 140 mark, we started to hear about $400 oil. I'm not so sure we're not doing the same thing now, even though I don't think oil is still bottom, but this is now we're starting to hear a lot more $20 oil, even $10 oil. 
that's typical as you build momentum toward the toward either an ultimate bottom or a peak. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, but I did find it interesting this week, too, because Gary Schilling, who was on, on your show a little yeah. over a month ago, he made the call for $20 uh, barrel oil, and he renewed that call last week saying, next year you're still going to have a million barrels a day in excess production, and, and he's still firm on his $20 barrel. But as you said, there's a number of analysts jumping on that train saying, okay, yeah, now oil is headed a lot lower. But and the nice thing about, I'm glad you bring up Gary, as, as you say, he's been a guest in this show. No, he's been consistent. He's not a Johnny-come-lately. When I hear somebody now talking those kind of lower oil prices, I say, well, where were you a year ago? Well, Gary Schilling was right there. <laughs> you know, he was sitting there going, hey, it's going to 20 when it was still at 100. So I, I, I pay attention to guys like that. The people I don't pay attention to are the ones who missed the down move, and now we're telling me? No, their methodology didn't get it, so I'm not listening to them at this point. But uh, I, I think this is such a pivotal story that our politicians have not addressed this for half a second in the uh, in the federal election. Why can't they talk about this? Because it changes the revenue number. I alluded to at the top of the show. It's 26 billion in revenues from the resource industry in general. Do you realize they can't make these promises? Look at the the darn thing. Every day of the week, they've got another 500 million. We're getting this. We're getting this all bs because the resource sector is it's been a sea change there they've missed the boat and oil's the leading way on that what's the number one story uh, the number one is starting with china's devaluing the yuan in the second week of august and it actually starts earlier that with their stock market correcting the talk and the idea of currency wars is really gathering steam yeah that, it is i mean we probably are going to be able to put China at the top of the list for about another several months. You know what I mean? Because of just what you've said, Rob. I mean, yeah, I looked through and we are getting that currency depreciation now. And then again, my problem is, hey, they've got U.S. debt out there. It, it's, it's, you depreciate your currency, you might get more exports, but you're also killing your debt side. But yeah, there seems to be a list building now. It is, and it was just drastic movements we saw this week. Emerging market economies, you talk about Kazakhstan, major oil producer, major trading partner with Russia and China. I mean, they saw a currency that they helped peg depreciate by 25%, and it was every other emerging market currency just extreme. Is it volatility or is it more likely? It's currency wars. These guys are devaluing their currencies to try and better their economic terms in, in terms of their neighbors, and all they're doing is stealing trade from one another because it's a competition to the bottom. Well, gosh, I looked at Turkey this week. Russia, of course, is getting killed. Uh, their currency has been killed, but it's, it's fur, further the ruble's getting killed because of the fall in oil prices. I'm, you're, I mean, you're right. You're, my head's on a swivel when I look at that stuff. You don't know who to watch. And a very interesting thing about this crisis that's going on overseas, but really emanating overseas, coming back to North America, is this the first time we're really seeing North American markets mm. impacted in these last few years. It was subprime crisis, it was taper tantrum, it was fiscal, cri- uh, cri- uh, fiscal cliff, but now we're seeing a crisis overseas that's really coming home to roost and hit us here in North America. So, I mean, that's just an observation from that point. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to talk, of course, with Victor Adair about that. He was probably rubbing his hands all week. But also, i got Ryan Irvine coming up just after the top of the hour. As you know, Ryan's had a terrific stock-picking record. And I'm going to be very interested to hear, what is this an opportunity to, in his perspective? You know, is he sort of sitting back, you know, kind of rubbing his hands, going, finally, I can get some stuff back at prices I like? Or is he saying, no, i got to wait till this plays out? Uh, I'm a little worried at it. So it'll be interesting to check with him. But, yeah, I think people. I think it's safe to say, Rob, that people's attention has been uh, got. <laughs> 
that is for certain. Yeah. Great stuff, Rob. Appreciate it. We'll chat with you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. When I come back, I'm going to share with you, as I told you at the top, this is one of the most unbelievable admissions, top of my list right now, uh, on the major economic policy, uh, really in the world, but certainly coming out of the States. We'll do that. You're listening to Money Talks, brought to you by Solera Club. I was just blown away uh, this week when I had a look at something. Uh, uh, Let me just start with this, though. You know, I feel sometimes a little bit of I told you so because you have to read some of the mail. In this case, I got a lot of grief for saying that despite the rhetoric to the contrary, the policies pursued by the Federal Reserve, the number one policy is called quantitative easing. You know, the record low interest rates, the buying of uh, financial instruments, you know, and it's done with the urging blessing of the Obama administration. I simply said, all that's done is widen the gap between the rich and the poor. And as I say, did I ever hear about that? But that's the main policy thrust of record low interest rates and the quantitative easing. It helped the top 7% of the population that own financial assets. I don't know which part of the homeless don't access credit people don't get or people low the low income don't have the access to credit. But clearly some do, uh, you know, some misunderstand that. And uh, I remember going back, uh, it was... Andrew Huzar, he was the man in charge of quantitative easing from 2009 to 2010. And I'm going to quote from him. I can only say, I'm sorry, America. As a former Federal Reserve official, I was responsible for executing the centerpiece of the programs, of the centerpiece program, the Fed's first plunge into the bond buying experiment known as quantitative easing. The central bank continues to spin quantitative easing as a tool for helping Main Street. But I've come to recognize the program for what it really is, the greatest backdoor Wall Street bailout of all time, end of quote. Okay, now I want to fast forward to this week. I was absolutely blown away when I'm reading this. It's a white paper, research paper, by the St. Louis Federal Reserve. His vi- the vice chair there is Stephen D. Williamson. And as I say, this is the number one financial policy in the U.S., Japan, Europe, quantitative easing. In quotes, there is no work, to my knowledge, that establishes a link from QE to the ultimate goals of the Fed, inflation and real economic activity. Indeed, casual evidence suggests that QE has been ineffective in increasing inflation. For example, in spite of massive central bank asset purchases in the U.S., the Fed is currently falling short of its 2% inflation target. Furthermore, Switzerland and Japan, which have balance sheets that are much larger than the U.S. relative to GDP, has also been experiencing very low inflation and deflation. So my point is, he's sitting there saying, they did this goal to kind of get inflation going back again to increase economic activity. And here he is, and a senior official of the Federal Reserve admitting that that is not happening. That's unbelievable to me. <laughs> You're talking about, so what have we got? We're several years past. We got trillions more in debt and we didn't get the result. That should have been flashed on the front pages of every newspaper. Yeah, it's challenging. We're in trouble. Look, I got to take a break. I got to come back. I got Ryan Irvine with me, so I'm looking forward to that. There's so much to chat with him about. Got a shocking stat, and I've got a goofy award. Victor Adair, Ozzy Jurek, you're listening to Money Talks right here on the Chorus Radio Network. <laughs> 